Hi, everyone. Uh, welcome to another exciting episode of Bloomberg Intelligence Tech Disruptors podcast. My name is Anurag Rana, and I'm a technology analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence, Bloomberg's in-house research arm. We are delighted to have Frank D'Souza as our guest today, who's the co-founder and managing partner at a private equity firm, Recognize. Frank co-founded Cognizant Technology Solutions in 1994 and was the company's CEO from 2007 to 2019. He's also on the board of General Electric and MongoDB. Uh, Frank is one of the smartest people that I've come across in the tech space. And I'm very excited to learn, um, you know, from him about emerging technologies. So Frank, welcome to the podcast. Could we please start with your background and how you got interested in the tech space? Adirai, thanks very much for having me on the podcast. It's great to be with you. You know, I grew up all over the world. Uh, I came to the U.S. to go to graduate school in the 1990s. Uh, I got a job at Dun & Bradstreet and I started an internal IT shop at a time when uh, globalization of software was just starting. And that entity that we started inside of Dun & Bradstreet later spun out uh, in the late 1990s to become Cognizant Technology Solutions. And over more or less two and a half decades that I was at Cognizant, uh, we grew it from a small startup to uh, one of the top five technology services companies in the world. Uh, when I left, the company was 300,000 employees and over $16 billion of revenue. And when I left, I got together with three other partners to form uh, Recognize. My partners are Charles Phillips, who was at Oracle and Infor, uh, David Wasserman, who was a longtime investor at Clayton Dublair and Rice, and, and Raj Mehta, who was my president at Cognizant for many years. So, you know, in, in, you know, as our, our podcast is all about disruptors, you know, I remember many years ago, uh, Cognizant coined the term um, SMAC or social mobile analytics and cloud. Uh, now, most services uh, companies call this uh, digital revenue. So those technologies are now well-defined. So when you look at the tech stack now, what are some of the disruptive technologies you are most excited about? You know, Anurag, before I talk about disruptive technologies, I think it's worth setting the context. And because we're at a very, very unique moment uh, in the technology services industry. If you, if you look back at history, at what are the change vectors? What are the things that have driven uh, change in the technology services industry? Uh, the first and perhaps most obvious, uh, which you alluded to, is um, a technology change. We're at a time when uh, technology is changing very rapidly. Uh, but also we're living through a moment where there's a very interesting macro environment. Uh, we're at this, this intersection of rising interest rates and high inflation uh, at the same time. And that has implications for services businesses. Uh, and finally, you know, we believe that technologies like artificial intelligence are significantly going to impact the business model of services companies, uh, impacting both what services companies deliver to clients, uh, but also how they deliver those services to clients. And so we we're at this unique moment where three change vectors, technology, uh, a macro event, and um, this business model shift driven by AI are, are all coming together. And so uh, what we look for are companies that have interesting technologies, of course, and interesting services around new technologies, but also companies that are um, positioning themselves well against the macro environment and also the changing business model. So let's go back, uh, you know, a little bit, uh, maybe a decade or so, and then try to dig into some of these things. I, I think one of the things that caught my attention many years ago was robotic process automation, or people started looking at it and say, well, this can help you minimize your, you know, FTE footprint um, by 
creating a new application or creating a new way of process of doing something. And and it's been it's been talked about quite a bit. And yet I always found that it was not scalable enough for like you create you can't create just one solution and you know plaster it all over the place. And I, I do not know how AI will shape up, but to me it sounds like a similar problem uh that I that I encountered at that time. Yeah look I think um you know, since the dawn of technologies, we've been on a march to uh, of, of productivity and productivity improvement using using technology, and that obviously has accelerated uh, over the years. And digital technologies accelerated that. Robotic process automation was one step along that journey, and I think uh, AI is the next the next level of that. Um, I think that the um, that artificial intelligence, particularly generative AI and these large language models um, and everything that they bring, uh, represent not an evolutionary um, improvement in in productivity, but rather a step change, uh, particularly as it relates to the services industry. And I think what we are going to see is that uh, a significant amount of the work that tech services companies do today will be augmented with artificial intelligence. We're already starting to see um, tools like Copilot and Code Whisperer uh, really helping uh, developers be more productive. And we're seeing real you know, productivity improvements from that. We're seeing developer productivity anywhere from 20 to 40% improved uh, using these technologies. And so how we deliver services to clients will change. But equally, what we deliver to clients will change because almost everything, every application in the world will have to be rewritten as an AI application or will have to be rethought as an AI application. And not only will we have to do that, but we'll also have to, I think that as AI pervades much of the world, much, you know, societies, governments, and so on and so forth, there'll be a whole new set of applications that need to get built that don't exist today. And so... You know, there'll be productivity uh, benefit from AI, but there'll also be this tremendous revenue opportunity for services businesses. Now, that's a very fair point. You know, one of the ways at least I can see a clear benefit to a lot of people when we look at some of the consumer applications. We, we already saw that with some of the demonstrations we've seen from, you know, Microsoft and then and, and a little bit from Google. But I, I've always had this in my mind as to uh, when we look at commercial application or an enterprise application, you know, I'm dealing with hundreds of applications around. My data is in, you know, again, tens and 20 different uh, databases out there. So in order for me to make any sense out of it, I have to spend so much money and time just to clean that up, put that on a common platform, then figure it out, and perhaps even build that application on a, on a you know, in a cloud native way. That to me is a lot of money that needs to go in. And the question is, and again, this is probably where, you know, you are asking a lot of people who are building some stuff is, what is the ROI? How long is it going to take? And can you scale it up from, you know, one company to the other? A lot of, a lot of things that are out there to unpack. First of all, there's no question that data is becoming simultaneously more pervasive than we've ever seen it before, but also uh, less structured. And so this sort of, um, you know, phenomenon of more data with less structured data is creating real opportunities um, for, for companies to exploit data in, in, interesting, in interesting ways. And the unstructured data is particularly interesting for AI algorithms and models because uh, historically, 
technologies pre-AI um, had trouble dealing with unstructured data. AI is starting to, to be uh, the tool to unlock meaning and, and insight from unstructured data. So there's, this, there, there's a real opportunity as we move forward at the intersection of unstructured data in particular and, and algorithms. And, you know, that I think we've seen uh, already in, in much of the facial recognition and those kinds of things that we almost take for granted right now when we unlock our, our, our iPhone, for example, and so on and so forth. And so th there, are these, there are these great opportunities. At the same time, as you correctly pointed out, uh, most enterprises have a tremendous amount of technology debt legacy systems, um, data, data silos throughout the organization. And again, I think that the early evidence is that we're, we have some, some opportunities using new technologies to, to do migrations to new technology faster than we've, had, we've been able to do in the past, to, to migrate code and translate code from one language to another uh, in automated ways, perhaps to do testing, which has always been one of the... Um, the more difficult parts of, of a migration to new technology, to do that in a more automated way. And so I think when you think about the, the entire software lifecycle, whether that's developing a new application or migrating legacy to the new, I think there, there are going to be opportunities with new AI tools to streamline and augment that, which in turn will drive better user experience. And I think over time, more demand for software and technology. You you did mention Copilot, for example, and and you know in the conversations I've had with people around it, you know people who do coding, you know they they basically say this is a tremendous productivity boost, fifty percent, seventy percent. I mean people have numbers all over the place, so that's a great great point. You know we will be building applications much faster in in a much more rapid way. Can you think of any other enterprise related application that we never thought about before? Because frankly, I mean as as I mentioned, part of your legacy is that you probably ran a very large analytics practice at Cognizant many, many years ago. To me, it's, you know, it sounds in that very same framework, but how, how would you compare the analytics that you did at that time versus some of the AI work today? Well, I, you know, I think that analytics, um, the analytics of the past was, was largely data aggregation and backward looking. Um, so we, we spent a lot of our time uh, as you correctly pointed out a minute ago, we, we spent a lot of our time in the past just aggregating data from disparate sources, getting it in, in a place, uh, and then looking backwards. And our ability and the tools to look forward in, a, in an intelligent way were very, very limited. I think that is the big change that we're seeing. Now. The ability to look forward and not, you know, in addition to looking backwards is what new technologies have given us. And this so-called predictive analytics uh, enabled by, by high-end data science and so on is what makes analytics and, you know, the data science, AI, kind of that area of technology so interesting right now. Yeah, that's perfect. In addition to AI, do you see any other uh, long-term secular trend that your team is focusing on? Yeah, you know, I mean, look, we are, um, we're looking across the entire uh, range of, of so-called digital technologies. So, you know, we... We're, we're, we continue to look, of course, at AI and analytics. We're looking at machine learning. We're looking at 5G. We think that in, in specific areas, there are interesting uh, opportunities in augmented reality and virtual reality. And, you know, I think we're living at this, at this moment where 
the real opportunities are at the intersection of each of those technologies that I talked about and specific industry verticals. So what, for example, is 5G going to mean for manufacturing? What's it going to mean for healthcare? What is VR going to mean for uh, the gaming industry? What's it going to mean for the media industry? So it's looking at those technologies, but also at the intersection of each of those technologies with specific industries. I, you know, are there any industries that are really taking a plunge at a much faster pace here compared to the others? You know, I think that, uh, I think it's it perhaps has always been the case, but financial services tends to be, tend to, in my opinion, my experience over 30 years, financial services has always been uh, one of the early adopters of technologies. Um, and, so, and we see that again, I think in, in terms of digital technologies. But I think the, the place that I'm most excited about uh, is healthcare. I think that we've seen uh, healthcare has historically perhaps not been the most aggressive adopter of technology, but I think that's changing. You know, particularly in some of the imaging areas, you're starting to see some real uh, opportunity for AI to, um, to, to, to create some, some pretty interesting results and some pretty interesting services and opportunities that were not feasible earlier. And that coupled with the pandemic, I think really accelerated adoption of technology in healthcare. Uh, the pandemic forced us to think about new innovative ways to deliver healthcare. We couldn't uh, necessarily see our providers in person. We, you know, we we needed to be distant uh, for obvious reasons, uh, and so healthcare really reinvented itself in many ways during the pandemic. Uh, and I think we'll see that momentum continue. Yeah, I think I'm on the same boat as you. I, I remember many many years ago covering Pro Systems then. You know, Cognizant bought Trezetto. And then, you know, after that, there was a whole slew of acquisitions by IBM that got into imaging and, you know, they really got serious with it. And then, uh, you know, very recently, Microsoft buying Nuance and Oracle buying Cerner. So I'm, I am on the same page that we're going to see some really cool stuff coming uh, out of healthcare. The thing that I've never been able to get my pulse on, and, and perhaps you could, you know, elaborate, and we really don't need to dive into IBM in this case, but IBM had a very good thing going with image recognition and their ability to give out feedback to the doctors about, you know, with, with all the database they had with Sloan Kettering and the partnership about, you know, if somebody's doing a diagnosis and um, the system can tell you there's a 98% likelihood that this person has this disease based on these symptoms, or it can go through millions of, you know, MRIs and will give you a very good way of looking at it. But I was surprised, and I saw this, I think, probably seven, eight years ago. It's not like something recent. And yet I found that, uh, you know, they have not been embraced at a much more rapid pace than at least I would have thought so compared to, let's say, consumer uh, technologies. So wh why do you think that's the case? And how do you, how do you means, how do all of us get over it? Because, because that's, a, that's a space with so much dollars and, and really need some help. Yeah, you know, I think the question of adoption of technology in healthcare is a, is a complicated one in that healthcare is something that's very personal, uh, something that historically, I think all things being equal, there's a preference for human to human um, interactions uh, in healthcare. Uh, many times, uh, if you're dealing with something that's uh, even slightly complicated in a healthcare context, as a patient, you may not have dealt with that before. 
And so you, you want, you don't necessarily have the experience and how to deal with it. You want the comfort of a, a human to human interaction. And so that a lot of those kinds of things have driven uh, somewhat of a, some, some resistance in adoption of technology in, in, in healthcare. But, you know, where you see it most dramatically is in parts of the world where access to healthcare is far more limited than it is in the developed world. Um, and so if you go to the developing world and where there isn't an option and where it's much, um, where access to healthcare is more limited, th those are the places in the world where you see actually far more dramatic adoption of digital technologies because there isn't another, uh, another alternative. And I think you might see that it will be uh, the developing parts of the world, India, Africa, places like that, where you have a far more substantial adoption of digital technology in healthcare. And those, those parts of the world might actually lead the world in, in adoption uh, and innovation around digital healthcare. And are there any, uh, I would say, regulatory burdens here that allow you or the companies that you're looking at not to go out and, you know, work on some of these things? And uh, because I, I've always found FDA or, you know, some of those approvals to just drag down any of the development that I, that at least I saw a while ago. You know, I, I, look, I think in, in every industry uh, that we serve, uh, we have to be aware of the, the regulatory uh, framework in the countries and in the jurisdictions around the world that are relevant. I don't think that the U.S. regulatory environment in healthcare is a substantial impediment to, to innovation. You know, I think that with AI, there are going to be a whole new set of questions around regulation of AI, around perhaps around the ethics uh, around AI and so on and so forth, uh, which I think we're going to have to grapple with. But I think at the moment, the regulatory framework, the regulatory structure has not been a substantial impediment to innovation in healthcare. You know, what about cloud? Is that an area that's of focus uh, in, in your portfolio companies or the areas we're looking at? Or do you think that's still uh, that, you know, that's kind of an older technology area for you? Uh, no, in fact, we have uh, several, several different plays in, in, in cloud. So from a, uh, a technology standpoint, you know, we're investing in companies like, you know, our portfolio companies like Cyclum uh, that are focused on cloud native development and, uh, and development on the hyperscalers. We're focused on companies like Spring ML and AST that have specific expertise in particular cloud, specific hyperscalers, particular clouds. And then, of course, we're focused on cloud uh, data and cloud data and analytics uh, because increasing, increasingly uh, after applications are moving to the cloud, data is also moving to the cloud. And so cloud data and cloud analytics, you know, through firms like Blend360 and Spring ML is another set of um, uh, investments that we're making. So we, we are still very much believers that cloud adoption has a long runway ahead. Oh, good. At least, uh, you know, I, I've been fighting with a lot of people on this the last 12 months and trying to explain that cloud still has a long runway ahead. So I'm very happy to hear that. One of the things I have been a bit surprised about is how little understanding people have in the infrastructure side of what's happening. Now, in your experience, when you were talking to clients or you still talk to, you know, your companies who are eventually selling it to clients, what is the big, uh, you know, problem for them to migrate more workloads to a public cloud? I mean, to me, it's just uh, there are so many advantages and yet I see so much on-premise footprint all over the place. You know, to me, just 
basic cloud services are like electricity. Nobody should be generating them in-house. You should be utilizing, you know, you can, you can put safeguards around it to make sure, you know, it's separate. But I'm still confused as to how people are fighting against it. I think your, your analysis is probably, uh, is probably generally the right one over a longer period of time. But I think in a short to medium term horizon for most organizations, there are some real constraints that, that don't make this a binary, you know, cloud versus non-cloud uh, decision. And so some of the considerations are, um, you know, legacy proprietary technologies, which generally need to run on site in, in, a, in a proprietary data center. There, there are still, uh, even though, you know, the cloud has come a long way from a security standpoint, there are still some applications where the security architecture may not be suitable for, for, for cloud, the crown jewels and so on and so forth, where there may be a, a reason to keep things on-prem. Uh, and then finally, you know, there are some cases where you have constant workload, high constant workload types of applications where you need a lot of compute at a, a relatively constant level where, you know, it actually might be more cost-effective to run on-prem. And so those are just three, three examples or three reasons that don't always make the cloud versus on-prem uh, decision a, a, a very clear one. And so I think that in the short to medium term, there's actually a, um, a very valid debate to be had about what is the hybrid cloud strategy? How much should be on-prem and how much should be on the public cloud? And I think that that will continue to be a paradigm for some period of time until, you know, things evolve. I think the, the public, the hyperscaler public clouds will come down the cost curve. The security models will get better. And, uh, you know, finally, legacy migrations will have happened to, to make things running on the cloud hundred percent a, a, a reality, but I think that'll take take some time yet. So you know that that brings me to another very interesting point. You look at a company like IBM, and they're and their mainframe business is still doing okay. They recently you know showed their transaction processing revenue or some of their older uh, you know th that's actually done better. So if I'm a company and I'm either a bank or an airline system that built an application. I don't know, 20 years ago or so, what's my mindset? Why, again, I get it that I have to maintain it because it's just too expensive to record it. It's just not worthwhile to put it somewhere else because it's very core to me. But it, what is the pivot point where the CEO or the CTO makes a decision that I need to build something equivalent to this in a cloud-native way? I've never understood when, when does that executive pivot over to the other side and why do we still have, you know, software applications that were built 30 years ago? You know, there is, again, a lot to unpack here. You know, these are, these are not straightforward questions. But, you know, the, 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 the pivot point generally comes to, if I can start the answer there, the pivot point generally comes when, when you realize that the flexibility of a legacy application uh, isn't, is, isn't going to be sufficient to give your customer uh, the experience that they demand going forward. Until then, you know, legacy applications that work and that do what they were intended to do uh, and are not uh, becoming uh, impediments to customer experience are generally, you know, um, reliable, work, get the job done. And so the case to change is, um, is less. Uh, increasingly, though, the world is becoming 
the world and therefore any organizations, applications and data are becoming more and more real time. And, and customers expect completely integrated experiences. They expect that you as an organization knows everything about them and everything about every interaction you've had with the organization. And so having islands of automation and islands of data that are not real-time synchronized with each other, which don't know about the other. So, you know, if a customer calls you on the call set in your call center and, does, and you don't know that they've just been on the website or that they've just booked a ticket on, uh, on, the, on the online reservation system, if all of that isn't joined up, uh, then it leads to a suboptimal customer experience. And I think increasingly it's that customer experience looking from the customer back that's going to force some of these legacy transformations to, to take place. Now, fair point. Let's talk a little bit about the market and the current environment. You know, you, you've seen the, uh, the internet bubble. You were the CEO of Cognizant during the global financial crisis. And even currently, the banking industry is just going through some massive changes. How does that, uh, first of all, how does that compare? How do a lot of these different volatile markets compare to each other? And do you see any similarities and do you see any differences? And then most importantly, you know, how does that impact your investment strategy? Yeah. I mean, you know, Anurag, every, every cycle has been different. So they're, they're in that sense, not comparable, but you know, and I'm, I'm dating myself a little bit, but as you said, you know, I've lived through the, the recession in the, in the, in the workforce in the early 1990s, I was in the workforce during the dot-com crash, the so-called great recession, the short COVID recession that we had in the, um, at the beginning of the pandemic. And then, you know, uh, whatever it is that, that this current environment will turn out to be. It, but, you know, what's true through all of those is that while each one has been different and each one, the driver has been and the fundamental causes has been different, that through this entire period, every time the economy has emerged from those down, each of those downturns, it's emerged more technology intensive than at the start of that downturn. And that's because slowdowns cause businesses and governments to focus on driving greater levels of efficiency lowering costs, driving greater levels of customer and citizen service and so on and so forth. And tech is the fundamental enabler of, of those things. So as I've looked across all of those, the one thing that has been common is that the economy and businesses and governments have emerged on the other side, more tech intensive than uh, when we went in. And so perhaps in that sense, this period of volatility is not that different. Um, we saw it in COVID. We saw a significant acceleration in digital transformation. And I think we're going to see that uh, again in, in this period of time. I think what's different uh, perhaps here from a technology standpoint is that we go into this period with an unprecedented range of technology innovations, unprecedented, that have the ability to impact both businesses and governments far more profoundly uh, than at any other time in really in human history, right? And so uh, we talked about AI, but there's so many others. And I think what you're going to see is we're going to go through this period of volatility and come out the other end with a dramatic acceleration and adoption of these new technologies across the industry, across the economy. No, fair point. You know, IDC is projecting a shortage of roughly uh, 4 billion developers by 2025. You know, we did talk about the, the co-pilot or the, you know, stuff that Microsoft's pushing out, GitHub co-pilot, I'm sure. A lot of other developed communities are doing the same thing. I mean, apart from that, how do we fix the shortage of technology talent in the market? You know, it's been the it's been the key question in in uh, my industry in the thirty years that 
that I've been in the industry and um, there isn't a, a single silver bullet, uh, obviously, but I think that a combination of three things can help. And it's a place, by the way, in, in terms of technology talent that we feel recognized can have a disproportionate impact because tech services companies, as you know, are some of the, the, the best creators of high quality jobs in the world. But, but what can we do? The first thing is that we, we, we can look to tap talent pools around the world that have historically not participated or who have underparticipated in the tech industry. So India's tech prowess is well understood, but now increasingly we're spending time looking at the tech talent pools in Latin America, where there's an incredible talent base. My partner, Charles Phillips, uh, and our team have been spending time looking at the talent base in Africa uh, recently as another market for talent. So I think we can start to look for, uh, the first lever is looking for talent pools around the world that have historically not participated more completely. The second is we got to find ways to create new pools of talent. And, and that's going to come from a couple of ways. Uh, the first is we've, for example, at Recognize have an initiative we call Purpose Beyond Profits, where we've partnered with two great organizations, an organization called Shorestart and an organization called Perscholus, to work with them to skill and upskill tech talent uh, in high demand uh, areas from parts of society that historically have been underrepresented in technology jobs. And so that's a little bit in the vein of creating new pools of talent. But another part of creating new pools of talent is that these new technologies are going to create so-called citizen developers, you know, where there's going to be a category of applications that, that can be built by people that have comparatively less uh, training in, um, in, in programming and skills like that, uh, so-called low-code, no-code uh, platforms are going to create a whole group of citizen developers. And so we can start to try to enable citizen developers to address some of the shortage. So that's uh, part of that, you know, creating new pools of talent. Um, and then finally, you know, you have to find ways uh, to automate work um, and you automate the work of technology services so that we can use the pool of talent that we have most optimally. So I think it's those three things, you know, tapping existing pools that we've not tapped of talent that we haven't tapped before creating new talent, and then finding new ways to automate um, the work. You know, Frank, going back even 20 years, there was always this discussion about the, the non-linear aspect of, you know, revenue growth for services companies versus the employee growth. And, uh, you know, I, philosophically, I completely agree with that. And yet I've seen, uh, you know, not a whole lot of deviation from when we first started on this thing. And yet I look now with Accenture more than 700,000 people or so. So if they grow their revenue double in the next six, seven years, I mean, is their employee base going to double in that time? So they, yeah, and, and, and that's really an area where I'm extremely not clear as to how that world shapes up, especially with AI coming in. Have you seen any technologies? Have you seen anything that can give you the comfort that, you know, we will eventually break this uh, linear relationship. So Anurag, it's, 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 in some senses, this is the, the age old question in tech services is, you know, sort of breaking, breaking linearity. And I think you have to peel back the layers of the onion a little bit. So the first thing I would say is that in technology services, I'm not sure that the goal is to break the relationship entirely. Um, I suspect that if we, you know, if we really broke the relationship entirely between revenue and headcount, the, the, the resulting firm or industry would no longer be a services industry in that case. It would be more like a software industry or a product industry. So 
to the extent that software, um, parts of software are going to require human intervention to, to configure, to deploy, to customize those kinds of things. I think there, there will be a, a human component involved in the, in that endeavor, in that activity. But I think that, so I think the goal here is to find ways to alter the coefficient of correlation between revenue and headcount. In other words, to find ways to produce the same output, if you measure that, however you measure that by revenue, whatever the, the same output with fewer hours of manual work. And that's another definition of productivity, you know? So for example, can Accenture double again, to use to continue your example, can they double over the next several years uh, revenue, but only add 30 or 40% uh, on the headcount? Right. That, I think that's more likely how this is going to evolve, which is that it won't be a, the, the coefficient of correlation will, will change. And I think that this is where I, I come back to, again, I may sound a bit like a broken record here, but I'm really excited about what AI is going to do here. Yeah. Because tools like Copilot and Code Whisperer and these things, as they become more prevalent, we really are seeing early indications that that coefficient is changing uh, and changing quite dramatically. And I think that's how this is likely going to play out. And I think you're, we're on the verge of seeing some very significant productivity improvements in the services industry. Yeah, no, it's so funny, uh, Frank, I'm talking to you after so long. And in the last eight, nine months, whatever I've seen in the AI space, it's the co-pilot that, that's been ringing in my head as to all the different things that it can do to, uh, you know, cut the pro, uh, improves the productivity. All right, last big question for us is, you know, what's the current competitive landscape in, in the private equity space? And, uh, you know, how much do you get involved with the, in the day-to-day -day running of your, your, you know, companies where you invest in? Uh, yeah, you know, um, Anurag, I'm a, I'm a novice uh, to the private equity industry, but um, uh, I'll tell you a little bit about, uh, we built Recognize with the belief that operators and investors coming together, deeply focused around a single sector of the economy, is a powerful new model for, for private equity. You know, so we are focused on a single sector, that's tech services. Our teams spend all their times interacting with great management teams and companies in the sector. And as a result of that, I think we wind up with a much deeper understanding of the companies, the competitive dynamics, the strategies, and the operational dynamics of that sector. Uh, it also gives us the opportunity to build strong networks of talent, clients, partners that we can leverage across across this ecosystem. So we think that this is sort of a, a new kind of private equity firm that's emerging uh, that predicates returns uh, both on operational value creation as well as financial value creation. So, you know, we think that that's a bit of a shift in, in, in private equity. And so to answer the second part of your question, you know, our goal is to find these great companies in tech services with great management teams and back those, those companies. And we spend all our time doing that. And so, you know, if we're going to find great management teams and we're going to back those, those teams and companies, we don't want to be operators running those businesses. We want to back great management teams. Having said that, right, we think that given that many of us pre-recognized were, were operators in the space, we have the ability to work side by side with management teams, um, helping them with specific issues, operational challenges and operational uh, and opportunities that they may have. One example just to wrap up here, um, Anurag, which was maybe one of the highlights of my um, of my last couple of years at Recognize, 
in in a way a, a difficult, a very difficult situation is that one of our portfolio companies, Cyclum, uh, had a significant Ukraine exposure when we when we invested in them, and you know um, it was an incredibly difficult situation. Uh, but we worked very, very closely with the Cyclo management team to manage the business uh, continuity, to manage the business through a war. The uh, the recognized operating team, you know, comes from various backgrounds, all from the industry. So uh, none of us had ever managed a business through a war, but we were able to sit shoulder to shoulder with with the management team at, at Cyclum and help that business navigate what was a very, very difficult uh, situation. And and come out the other side uh, in in good shape, and so uh, it was a, a tremendous privilege for me to have had the opportunity to do that, to work with the Cyclum uh, associates around the world, including uh, many in the Ukraine, to try to keep them as safe as possible and try to protect both the employees but also uh, the business itself, which we were successful in doing. Oh, that's so so nice to hear. Um, you know, Frank, this has been an amazing discussion. Uh, we hope to get you back a year from now and learn more about AI and what all things are happening. You know, good to have you. Great to be here, Anurag. I, I really appreciate it and look forward to talking to you again.